First John chapter 3, 11 to 24. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has internal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brother, brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, We have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandment and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandment abides in God, and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. This is the word of God. Verse 11 of the passage that was read says, this is the message you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Clearly, the call to love is a key component of the Christian message. It's a message about God's love for us, but it's a message that's meant to mold and shape us so that we love others. And we're in a sermon series where we're talking about love because maybe some of you instantly say, this sounds good, this is attractive, I want to do it. But in the trying to do it, you find that it's hard. You find that that the more you try to love, the more you, you find your own selfishness is there or your own impatience with others. And because of that, some of us get cynical. We decide that it's easier not to, or we decide to dismiss the concept of love as a fairy tale. And the reason that we're looking at love over a period of several months is um, not because it's this wonderful thing that we're so excited to be a part of, but it's this profound, mysterious thing that we don't really understand. And therefore, we're looking at it so that we can um, understand it just a little bit more, that we would be able to Um, really recognize the power of how love works in us and through us. And so this message that, that we are to receive is about how God has loved us, but we are sent out to love others. That's the message John proclaimed from the beginning. And yet we get stuck. We get stuck finding ourselves in situations that we don't have it in us to love in a, in a long enduring way. We could love generally, We could have feelings of love. We could have a desire for love. But when you have an actual individual 
who's hard to love or who doesn't work with you or doesn't appreciate your sacrifices. It's hard to keep loving in the way that Jesus has loved us. Um, and, and this raises feelings of guilt. It, it uh, makes us feel stuck. It makes us feel like failures. It makes us want to give up. And yet we're not to give up. And so today I want to talk about one of the ways that we get stuck or one of the, the scenarios, the kinds of situations where we get stuck. And so I'm going to talk about how we get trapped. But then I also want to talk about what we need to know. Uh, this little section gives us a number of things that if we know them, and if we bring them to mind, and if we work them into our lives, it actually helps us to get out of this trap. So uh, I'm going to begin with how we get trapped. What I'm talking about in being trapped is that we get stuck in our selfishness. And, and maybe uh, if you want to think about what, what am I talking about the, today or, or what's an area of your life to watch out for to grow, watch out for spite. Spite is one of those things as an example of where we get trapped that, that we become so angry or uh, so hurt or so resentful or so bitter that we're prepared to do harmful things despite the cost. We, we may know morally they're wrong. Or there's also this phrase that we have about people who cut off their nose to spite their face. It shows the absurdity of spite. Because sometimes we, we get trapped in this feeling of, of the thing that I want to do is to harm others. And yet most of us, even when we're feeling that, know that harming others is not only wrong, but it's self-defeating, like the person who cuts off the nose to spite the face. And yet we get trapped in those feelings where we feel like the only relief is just to vent them or to act on them, um, even if we're foolish enough to know that it will only make things worse for everyone and for us, yet we do them. All of us find ourselves at times doing what we don't want to do or doing what we want to do but know we shouldn't do. Not simply, uh, one component is the moral conscience, I shouldn't do that because it would be wrong to harm others. But sometimes you're convinced that you're justified in harming others. But even where you catch yourself and you say, but I know that in harming them, that's going to ruin this relationship. I know in the future, I'm going to feel guilty and regret about it. I know that this is forming bad habits of all the ways that it harms us, yet we still get trapped in that moment. Uh, and sometimes we give into it, or sometimes we just get stuck having to fight it. John wants to encourage us out of that by warning us um, about hatred, about these murderous thoughts that, that sometimes come to us. And in verse 12, he, 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 he gives us what not to do. And he reminds us of a, of a figure early in the Bible, an important figure. He's only in that one chapter, Genesis chapter 4, if you're interested in reading the story of Cain and Abel. You could read that right in the beginning of the Bible. Uh, but the opening chapters of the Bible are very foundational, setting a trajectory. So the story of Cain and Abel is not just another incident that happened in the world, but there's really something profound about Adam and Eve's first children, that the first human beings born into this world, one hates the other enough to kill them. And that sets a pattern of, of humanity. And it's not just the other out there, but it's within families and households. It's not that we just hate people who are different, but we hate people who are not us. And then that plays itself out on a social scale. Verse 12 says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. If you go back and read the story, it's quite an interesting one. And, and what I want to highlight from that story is, is this dynamic of three things that I identify, which is part of this 
this trap that I think Cain found himself in, this um, sort of triangle of temptation that he was in the middle of, where he then gave into temptation, though he was warned directly by God not to. So, so the context of the story is Cain and Abel as brothers, they go out and they do their work and each of them brings an offering to God. And for some reason, Cain's offering falls short. Now, we don't know why. And uh, I, I, everybody reads stories differently. I'm one who reads that story and desperately wants to know why. What was wrong with Cain's offering? And the problem is the passage doesn't tell us. I, I'm the kind of person that wants to know because I don't want to make the same mistake of Cain. So if, if Cain's offering to God was not good enough, I want to know what did he do, do wrong so I can learn from that. Maybe some of you want to know what he did wrong because you're evaluating, is God justified in his being angry with people? And so, so you may have a different reason for wanting to know. There could be any number of reasons. The story doesn't tell us because the point is not that the story of Cain and Abel teaches us how to make good sacrifices. It's more that moment where God comes to Cain and speaks truth to him and warns him and offers him an opportunity and yet it unfolds tragically. The, the lesson is not, this is how you make good sacrifices. I think the lesson for us is a little bit more in the realm, what happens when, and here are the three things. One, you're, you feel you're falling short. There's something in you that's not good enough. You're not meeting up to some standard. Right away, that, that shifts our hearts, our minds, our internal dynamics. It disadvantages us. So all we know about Cain is something wasn't good enough. So that's one thing. Secondly, there's some sort of standard or something that, that makes clear that we're not good enough or reminds us of that. So it's interesting in, in Genesis 4, Cain's reaction to his insufficient offering, the, the, the language of the passage is that he gets angry and his face falls. Uh, his face falling would just be a Hebrew expression. Um, but you could probably, it's, a, it's an image that maybe you can imagine. And what's interesting is typically if you think of anger, you think of the clenched face. You think of a face tightening up. His being angry and his face falling, I don't know exactly what that means, but it sounds more to me that he's deflated. It sounds, it sounds like depression. Interesting how anger and depression can sometimes go together because in depression, when we feel that we're not good enough and our face falls, we're dealing with complicated emotions that we can't understand or we can't make sense of and we can't fix them. But what, what naturally tends to happen in our inability to organize things and get ourselves out of it, the fallen face, the, the lack of motivation, the feeling down, sometimes in our failure to, to identify what they are, we become angry. Or sometimes in our inability to name them or organize them or do something productive, we get angry. And so below the surface, there are deep, complicated things that we don't understand or we can't handle. And because it's hard to keep having to, to confront our inability, our falling short, anger has the potential to energize and motivate us when, when our face falls, when, when we're down, when we don't want to do anything. Something needs to animate us. And the message of John is, it should be love. But in that moment when we feel like we're falling short, anger could be motivating, but, but anger is somewhat dangerous. And anger would wake us up and pull us out of that situation, get us to do something. But we need to navigate the situation where, first of all, we feel like we're falling short, 
then we're angry about it. And God comes and asks him a question. God comes to Cain and says, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? Or something like that. And the very question is an invitation of grace where then God says to him, you know, if you, if you do well, will you not be accepted? There, there's a possibility of change. You don't have to be stuck there. It's not too late. You didn't ruin everything. You fell short. Well, why don't you, why don't you do well? Uh, come and you'll be accepted. And so there's a gracious invitation. And then there's a warning where he says, um, but if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It, it is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. That's, that's God's warning to Cain in that moment. So why has your face fallen? Well, well, do well and you'll be accepted. And so you think in that moment there's an opportunity, but here's these two factors. One is falling short. Secondly, by God inviting him to change, God is inadvertently reminded, reminding him that he's falling short. And when you're already feeling down, that stings. And so those two legs of the triangle, and some of you, I know there are some people that make notes and drawings during this. You could just draw a triangle, and one of them is falling short. Uh, the second is um, being reminded of the truth of some standard. And the third leg, though, is temptation. Uh, the warning there that God has is, in this context, uh, you will be tempted. And, and, and what he's told is, you need to exercise some energy to rule over this so you don't give into it. And yet, there's Cain in the middle of these factors, I'm not good enough. God is making clear to me, and reminding me that I'm not good enough, even though he's inviting me to change. And here's this sin that's crouching, something that's going to influence, that's going to give me some options to do that are harmful. And so what would Cain want to do? I don't know what went through his mind, but one thing would be to silence God. Maybe he would want to kill God, but you can't. You can't kill God. And so, uh, so there's, uh, there's um, Abel. And, and so, so now, uh, here's sharpening the, the, third, the third point of the triangle. Uh, you've got you're falling short. You've got the standard that reminds you you're falling short. What is the temptation? What's interestingly, Abel, as far as we know, did nothing to Cain. Abel just did to God what was acceptable. And so it's in that triangle. I'm falling short. Something is reminding me I'm falling short. And something else is doing well. That's where the temptation is. In that mix. So what do you do? Do you look at the person who's doing well and, and follow their example? Well, Cain, perhaps he wanted to, to kill God. Perhaps he wanted to tell God off, but he couldn't. What he should have done is to improve himself, but he didn't. What he did was he hated his brother and he killed him. He gave into temptation. He, he mishandled that scenario in, in his uh, face falling down, in his being angry. He was tempted and his temptation ruled over him rather than him ruling over it. I, I don't quite know the meaning of, of uh, in Genesis 4. It tells us that, that when Eve has Cain, she's, she names him Cain because the Hebrew word means something about uh, having gotten. And she says, I've gotten a man from the Lord. I don't know exactly the significance of his name being to, to have gotten, but there's something about Cain as being the one who takes, <laughs> the one who, who uh, rather than the one who gives what is pleasing to God, when he doesn't have enough and he falls short, he desires desires to take. And there's Abel who is giving to God and he resents that and hates it. So he takes Abel's life. So that's the, the scenario where John is saying, don't be like Cain. 
And, and all of us are going to find ourselves in those moments where, where we fall short in some way, whatever the standard is. It could, it could be God's standard. It's a moral falling short. It could be your parents' standard, or it could be your employer, or it could be some ideal you have for yourself, or it could be society where they say people should be like this, and you realize you're not. And so you feel down about it. And there's going to be anger in your inability to, the longer you're unable to, to figure it out and improve, anger is going to mount and anger is going to be energizing. And then there's going to be some standard reminding you. And will you rise to that if there's an opportunity? Um, often it's really hard to. And so we get stuck. And then in that scenario, you see people that have it better than you, people who are doing better than you. And you want to blame them. My problems are their fault. You want to hate them uh, for, for the problems they're causing others or any number of ways that our mind processes that situation. But for now, all I want to say is when you're in the middle of that triangle, the same message comes to us that God gave to Cain, which is be careful. <laughs> if sin is crouching, it's going to spring up uh, and you can't let it rule over you. And yet it's so hard in that scenario to love your brother when you want your brother to love you and they're not. And it's that, that's a, a context where we get stuck. And so, so John warns us not to be like Cain. And as an application of this, um, what does he tell us to do with it? In verse 13, he says, don't be surprised brothers that the world hates you. And so here's just two quick things on that. First of all, being hated is not evidence that you're living an upright life. <laughs> That's one of the traps that we get stuck like Cain, that rather than being in, uh, the kinds of people who improve, the second people respond and tell us we're doing something wrong, in our anger, we think uh, that we, we project our hatred onto them and we self-justify. This is, everyone has the tendency to do this. Religious people not being accepted, and even within Christianity, we find that, that sometimes people resent Christians for the, the foolish, harmful, thoughtless things we're doing, and yet we interpret their rejection of us self-righteously, where we think that their anger with us must be evidence there's something wrong with them rather than us, and we're falling into the very trap of Cain. That's not what John is encouraging. He's not saying, here's how you know you're doing a, a good job of following Jesus when everyone hates you. Sometimes people hate us because we're doing a terrible job following Jesus. But what John says is the nature of the world is that, that the, spiteful, the spiteful instinct in all of us hates when somebody is doing right. And therefore, John invites us to know the love of God and to act on the love of God, which means you can live differently. But the problem is, as you try to live differently, those who don't want to live differently and don't want you to remind them that they need to grow may resent you. And, it's, and, and John is not saying, you'll know that you're righteous when people hate you. He says, don't be surprised as you try to live a righteous life, that the world will try to pull you in and don't respond to them as they are treating you. But actually remember what Jesus did for you and, and allow that to lead you. So, so he's warning us not to get trapped as Cain did, not to get caught up in hatred, in resentment, in bitterness. Don't be a spiteful person because there's a better way. The message we have from the beginning is that we should love. So I want to talk about now some things that John gives us in this passage that will help move us out of that moment. You find yourself stuck in that triangle. I'm falling short. I don't like the reminder that I need to improve. 
and there's somebody else who's better than me and now I feel miserable and, I, and, I, and I'm not energized to get out. The only energy is anger. Where do you find love? Well, well, John tells us some things that we can know. And there are five of them in the one passage. So uh, if you just read, reread through this passage, if you're trying to remember the kinds of things I've talked about, look for what can we know. So in that scenario, you're tempted, you're feeling down, you're angry, you're resentful, you're not good enough, and you need to improve. So what are some things that would be helpful to know in that scenario so you don't give in to temptation, you don't get drawn into evil, but actually you step out of it and you step back into doing what is right. I'm going to walk us through five things. I'm going to spend most of the time on numbers two and three. The first one's in verse 15. Uh, Everyone who hates his brother is, is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That itself is not going to take your feelings away, but it will give you perspective because in the desire to do something murderous. And remember, G- Jesus in Matthew 5 says, if you call your brother fool, you've committed murder. Is it to the same degree as killing somebody? No, but it's the same instinct, the same seed, uh, the resenting somebody else and wanting to tear them down, the wanting to take something from them so you feel better about yourself. We have to remember that that that, that is not the paradigm of eternal life. The, the, the the murderer does not have eternal life dwelling in them. And eternal life here is not simply days without end as a reward for having lived a righteous life, but, but eternal life is something John says Jesus brings into your life to change you now, to, to make you alive. And so, so the first thing is just to know that that murderous thought in you, you may not think of it as murderous, but that hateful, that spiteful, that harmful thought in you, that instinct to just catch yourself and say, before I act on this, let me know that this is not the way of eternal life. And if I want eternal life, I don't want to abide. I don't want to remain in this, but I want to get out of it. And so that's not going to change your heart, but it will help you know not to give in to what your heart wants to do. So that's the first thing. Second thing that we can know, verse 16, by this we know love. This is where we start to have help. Not simply to know that what we want to do is harmful. That's the first thing. Murderous thoughts. There's no eternal life in that. But we can know love. Now, uh, there are other translations. The New International Version says, by this you can know what love is. And that's helpful because that's one of the questions we have. How do we know what love is? Well, well, Jesus is going to show us. He's going to teach us. The translation that you heard, and I don't know if you have your Bible open, depending on what translation you have, but the ESV says, by this we know love. Not that we know what love is but we know love because love isn't just a set of principles. It's not just something you're to act on, but, but John will tell us in first John, God is love. Uh, love is something that happens between living beings and we know love because we know Jesus. And so it's not simply that we know what love is so we can do it, but we know love because we are invited to join our lives with one who is love and who has loved us. And that changes things. It's not simply that you need on your own to do the loving thing, but you need to not act on your own and you need to act in the context. You need to remain in love and Christ rather than in death. So verse 16, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And it's that contrast 
that we're given, don't be like Cain, the one who is the taker, the one who falls short, and instead of stepping back up, he tears down. The one who is losing his own life, and so he takes the life of those around him. The one who is unrighteous, and so he hates the righteous. There's a different way. And what we're told is all of us are far more like Cain than we're willing to acknowledge. But there's Jesus, who's not like Cain. Jesus does not resent the righteous. (laughs) Jesus is the righteous. Jesus does not come to take from others that he would have life, but he comes to give his life that he can give to others. He does not come to tear down the righteous to build himself up, but he comes as the righteous to let himself be torn down in order that the unrighteous would receive. This is a whole different way, and we're told that, that when, we, when we look out of our misery, of our being stuck, and we see not simply what love is, but we know love, Jesus who invites us, come and join with me, that that changes us. And so verse 23, I think, you know, this, this, is, this is my own read on things. Others might, might disagree. I think verse 23 of, of 1 John 3 is the heart of John's theology. If you read John's gospel, why is John writing his gospel? Why is John writing these three letters that you get? And even what's undergirding, assuming the same John wrote the book of Revelation, what is John's goal? This is the commandment. A commandment is you need to listen. You need to take this seriously. You need to to really embrace this. Let it guide you. Let it restrain you. Verse 23, this is his commandment. So you want to know what Jesus has for you. This is is the commandment of God, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. And those two things go together. So, so, So the message that we should love one another is not without knowing love. It's not just saying, take those romantic feelings you have and act on them. It's not saying, you're not a good enough person, but be a better person. It's saying we get stuck because we don't know love. But actually we can because Jesus comes into wherever we are where we're stuck. He comes into our anger. He comes into those places where we fall short. He comes into the period of temptation. He comes into our spiteful thoughts and desires. And we can know him. And so the commandment is, first, believe in the name of his son. God says, this is how you get out of being stuck. This is how the sinner is forgiven. This is how the unrighteous becomes righteous. I give it to you. It's grace. I've sent my son to be the one who gives. You don't have to take righteousness of your own. You need to receive it. And see, that's a different paradigm. We think of ourselves as givers or takers. And so we see that we're takers. I don't want to be a taker. So I'm going to, by by a moral will, become a giver. And Jesus says, you're not just a giver because you're not going to be able to give. And you're not just a taker because taking is harmful. You're a receiver. Come and receive. Uh, Believe in the name of his son. And when you receive the love of Christ, then you no longer need to be a taker because now you have something to give. And that's a different paradigm. And so we can know love. And so you find yourself stuck. What do I need to know? Well, I know that eternal life does not come from murderous thoughts. I know love, so let me believe in Jesus and let that uh, stir my actions. Here's the third thing. Uh, This is verse 19. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Okay, here's something that we could know that's true. So here's the problem Cain had. He was falling short, and the truth of his falling short provoked him. It, It stirred attention in his heart. 
John is saying there's something true that you can know that will actually bring reassurance to your heart. In that moment of anger, frustration, confusion, what can you know that's not going to further make you want to hide and isolate and shift blame and not deal with your problems? Well, how do we get to that point of assurance that, that we, we have our hearts at rest? It's possible. That's what verse 21 says. If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And look, frankly, this is, this is so essential to what most of us are seeking in life and the, and the tensions and the struggles where, where however we're thinking about it, somehow the fact that we're falling short somewhere, leaving us angry and restless, leaving us misunderstanding, resentful, whatever it is, we want to be at rest. We want our hearts to be at peace and we don't know how to get there because we're stuck. This creates the possibility, if your heart does not condemn you, you can have confidence before God. And you say, well, great for you. <laughs> but here I am, stuck in that triangle. I don't have that confidence. And so there it is. There's the reminder. Here's what I can be, but here's what I'm not. And this is what makes Christianity so distinct and so profound and so marvelous, because it speaks to people stuck in that triangle. Not a message from the outside saying, we're the winners, and if you get it together, you could join us. But it's saying... Jesus comes into those situations in love and he joins with you. And so do you find yourself thinking, my heart condemns me. And so I don't have this confidence. I don't feel good enough. Well, verse 20, whenever our heart condemns us. And see, this is this false view that we think, well, if Jesus has done something for us, well, then the only way I know that I'm believing in the name of his son is when my heart is confident but what happens when, when I fall short? What happens if my heart condemns us? John assumes this is going to happen whenever our hearts condemn us. That's going to be part of life in this world. We always will see we fall short. And maybe it's by a real standard that we don't meet. Or maybe it's some made-up, fictionalized standard by society or some ideal that we have. Whatever the case is, we will go through these periods whenever it happens, whenever our hearts condemn us. Well, then what? Will you be like Cain and act in a spiteful way? Or will you believe in the name of Jesus, his son? And will you not get stuck in condemnation and the actions that flow from it? Will you not have murderous thoughts where eternal life doesn't exist? And will you abide in that? Or will you plant yourself in Christ and abide in him? That's what we're told. Verse 20 is quite profound. And I would say if of the, these five things that I'm giving, if, if the thing that strikes me this week as, as what you can take with you to meditate on, it's really verses 19 to 21. What here can help me get out of being stuck? What's well, those moments when our hearts condemn us? Verse 20, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. See, part of the trap in that, that triangle that Cain was in, I'm not good enough. God or something is reminding me that there's a standard I'm not meeting and I need to realign to. And then there's somebody else that's right who's also reminding me and I resent them. What we want to do is we don't, we don't want to know. We don't want to, we don't want to know the depths of what's wrong in us and we don't want others to know it. And so we want to bury it. We want to hide it. We want to ignore it. And that gets exploited because it still functions underneath. And what we're told here is God knows everything. And that is terrifying as long as you want to remain stuck. As long as your strategy is, I'm going to stay where I am in my bitterness and I'm just going to throw everyone off. I'm just going to act with spite. I'm just going to chase everyone away. If that's what you want, 
it's terrifying to think God knows everything. But there's something so tremendously freeing when we understand that God knows everything, because our natural way of thinking is once we see how much we fall short, once our own heart condemns us, well, then we're condemned. And so once I know it, and I know that God knows it, is there no hope? When you realize there's no hiding from God, there's no killing God off, that, that, that's an impossibility. You, you, you can say, you can decide God doesn't exist, but he does. And so you, you can disorient yourself from the truth. You could say, I'm fine the way that I am, and I'm just going to ignore that, but you know you're not. So you're not going to deal with it. And so here it's saying, but God knows everything. And here's the question for you. Does God offer you grace and the hope of Christ because he thinks that you're good enough? And then in that moment when your heart condemns you, you see something and you think God will see something. And that will demonstrate to you and God that you were both wrong. Or does God know everything? And is that not why he sent Jesus? Did he send Jesus because you were pretty good and he wanted to give you an example that you should follow? Or did he send Jesus because God knows everything (laughs) and he knows our murderous thoughts and he knows that we fall short and he comes and he asks, why are you so angry? And why has your face fallen? But he knows we will not do well. And so he sends Jesus who has done well and joins himself to us. When your heart condemns you, you are learning something new about yourself. You are not showing God anything he doesn't already know. The reason he sent Jesus is because he knows what's going on in our hearts. And so the way out of this, whenever your heart condemns you, verse 20, God is greater than your heart. I mean, that's the point. There's you and your own small life and your own imperfections. And and you find, oh, I'm not good enough. I'm falling short and everybody around me is better than me. Well, sure. And God is better than you. And so your heart condemns you, but, but God is greater than your heart. And that's what God is doing. He's inviting you to get out of your own selfish place of being stuck. And he's saying, forget about you and your, all of your flaws, but, but turn from them, acknowledge them as true, and remember that there's something greater than your heart. And, and, and it's that need for something greater that... that that we need to see. And that's why we gather for worship as a church, to remind ourselves over and over as we look to God in song and in prayer, to say there's me in my own imperfect life and there's this world and all of its flaws, but there's something greater. And when I see that, it changes things. You know, there's a, a typical pattern that, that people who perform find themselves in. And, and this, this could be in any realm, but when I think of, uh, of people who perform in the arts as, as an, ex- an obvious example, you know, why do people go into to performance in the arts? Well, there's any number of reasons. But often there's something, there's something wonderfully attractive about something. And so, so a typical story could be a 10-year-old kid who goes to a Broadway show and is electrified, uh, just so loves everything, the magic, the energy, and their thought is, I want to be part of this. And there's something... Uh, so in that, yes, there may be an egotistical seed of I want this glory and I want to be caught up in that. There's also can be something genuine of, of seeing something great and wanting to be part of that and something generous. I want to give to others. I want to be somebody that creates this for others. And there's something wonderful that people get pulled in to say, I'm going to, I'm going to hone a craft. And in this case, I'm going to become an actor. 
and I'm going to develop the skills. And then you see those who are great and it's inspiring. Whenever you see greatness, you see the possibility. But something happens along the way when you actually develop some of the skills. Something of the magic goes out in the long haul of the hard work because you realize to continue growing, you need to be honestly in tune with where you're falling short. You can't be some foolish egoist who just goes out and feels good about what they do. But if you're actually gonna serve an audience, you need to find where are the next places to improve. And so what happens is sometimes people who uh, have gone into the arts altruistically, wanting to be part of something great, wanting to give, find themselves constantly looking at, I need to improve here, I need to improve here, I need to improve here. And it doesn't happen all at once, but at some point you'll look at your life and you realize, whenever I see somebody performing wonderfully, I'm not inspired, but I resent them. <laughs> when, whenever somebody points out, hey, this was really good, but, but this could be the next thing you work on, it stings. Rather than being inspired to grow, we find ourselves in that triangle, I'm falling short. There's something that's reminding me I'm not good enough and, and here are the people that are doing it well. And rather than being drawn in, I wanna pull them down. And what do you do? That, that's an impossible place. Now, now you, part of it, you do the knowledge thing where you, where you just tell yourself, I went into this because I wanted to give something and so before the performance, you, 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 you get out of your ego and you say, I'm not going out there so that they'll love me, but I'm going out to give them something. And that keeps you going. Performance by performance, you just have to do that. But sometimes people who have been in that story three years, five years, and they're trying to get out of it, and they do whatever they can, and then something that they didn't plan, something that they didn't control happens is, once again, they're captured by that great performance. It's somewhere where they see something that, that takes them out of themselves. They're, 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 they're back in that scenario like the 10-year-old kid who sees something glorious, and it pulls them out and it reminds them of that big vision that then aligns everything. So then it doesn't matter that you're not good enough, that you can grow. It doesn't matter that other people are excellent. And it's when we don't have that and we get into our own small worlds that we get stuck. That's what John is saying. He's saying, but we know love because Jesus laid down his life. There is something so great that if you look there, you're looking at something that will lift you up. You're looking at something that is so fantastic. John says, when your heart condemns you, there is something greater than your heart. And as we look to what's greater than our hearts, as we look to Jesus, who was not like Cain, who took, he's not like us who want to tear down, but he came among us. And when we wanted to pull him down to us, he came in order that he would lift us up that we would know what love is. And it's that vision that he gives us of the glory and majesty of the love of God is the only thing that pulls us out of that self-pitying, spiteful attitude. And so that's something that we will know. Uh, and here's the last two things. I'll be briefer with this. Um, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And so what we're told is now there's, there's a choice. When you find yourself stuck, there's a choice. You can't abide in death. You could give in to murderous thoughts, but here's the thing, you don't have to. We can know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And, and there's a sense here in which there's an assurance that comes from saying, I want to do the spiteful thing, but I know 
that because of Jesus, I've passed out of this. And so I don't have to do it. it it's, I, kn I know that that's what I want to do, but I'm not going to do it. And you do the loving thing instead. And we're told that, that as you do that, you set a trajectory that builds you up. If you keep doing the spiteful thing, you get more and more angry. You abide in death. But if you deny the spiteful thing and do the honorable thing, if you say, I'm not going to do what, what tears others down, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have an offering that would be pleasing to God. The more you do that, the more you get confirmation in life. I can know I've passed out of death and into life because I see God's love at work in me. And here, here's the last thing that you can know. Verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. And, and so in that moment of isolation, here I am, me by myself, wanting to chase everyone away. And we think, I don't want to abide in death. I want to abide in him. Well, when we keep his commandments, we're abiding in him. We're, we're being faithful. We're not, we're not doing the murderous thing. We're doing the loving thing. We're not doing the greedy thing. We're doing the generous thing. And so we can know that we are abiding in God. But here's the important thing. We can know that he abides in us. It's because of the spirit he's given us. Again, you're not stuck alone in that little triangle to figure your way out, to pull everyone down. But God comes into that situation. He knows your heart. He knows you will be tempted. He knows far more than you do, that you have a lot of growing to do. But he will abide in you, and he says, abide in him. Don't abide in death, abide in Christ, and join with him. And what this means is that action is important, that you live by that spirit, that you, you recognize the freedom and that you know love and you walk in it. And that's why uh, just the action for this week is verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. The message of love is not simply to calm the anxious feelings of our restless hearts because we're failing to deal with the truth. Sometimes that's what we do in Christianity. I just want to know that I'm okay. Am I okay? Well, then fine. And then I'm not changing. What we're told is we're not okay, but God knows your heart and you'll be okay if you believe in the one he has sent and if you love one another. So, so, so that's the paradigm. Believe in the one that is, your heart condemns you. God doesn't condemn you. God is greater than your heart. Don't stay in condemnation, but set it aside and, and know the offer of grace and forgiveness is real. So believe in his son and then act in love. Go do it. This week, watch. There are things you're going to be able to do where you can love others. Maybe you will be excited about them and then you will know God is at work in you. Maybe you will be, have some excuse where you say, I don't want to do it. I would say, believe in Jesus. <laughs> and do the loving things. And you'll find that that's how eternal life abides in you. God gives it to you, and then he tells you to live in it. Let me pray for us. Our Father, uh, we, we need this word to instruct us, to teach us. Lord, there is a word of truth that makes us feel condemned because we're reminded that we fall short. Lord, we confess that, that our face falls so easily. We confess that we grapple with anger, and we confess that our hearts are filled with spiteful, angry thoughts. Thank you, Lord, that you are greater than our hearts. Thank you that Jesus is greater than anyone that we see. That when we look at him and his righteousness, we don't need to tear him down to make ourselves feel better, but that if we draw near to him, his righteousness is our righteousness. We thank you that we don't need to justify ourselves before you, but we are justified by faith in Christ. Lord, give us that freedom and help us to be people who 
have this truth to embolden our actions, to be people who rejoice, that we can love rather than hate, that we can build up rather than tear down. May the spirit you have put in us energize us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.